Arise, psychology nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, author of the book, Why We Get Mad, and I'm here without my usual co-host, but with my friend, Sammy Elder-Feaser. How's it going, Sammy? It has gone better. Um, I had my first day at work yesterday, and I threw up halfway through the day and had to go home because I think I got food poisoning. Wow. Okay, that you're yeah. right. That's not a great first day of work story. I, it was not. <laughs> and you remind people what you do, because I think this makes it actually so, worse. Yes, as, as you may have heard in one of our earlier episodes, I was at our, my previous middle school, but now I'm working at an elementary school for summer school. I am working with kindergartners, and they're super cute and adorable. Yeah. And yeah, and then I got sick halfway through the day. So do you think that one of the things you've taught these children is like an introduction to what food poisoning is? Is that one of the things <laughs> they've learned from you? That's what I will be teaching them tomorrow. The Excellent. dangers of food poisoning. Yes, Excellent. I will educate them. Have you been able to identify the source of the, the food poisoning? I am not sure, but I did get some sushi from Meyer, and you know what? I feel like maybe that was it. <laughs> That's a bummer. That's a real bummer. Yeah. No, it's usually so good. I don't know. Yeah. Though. Maybe it wasn't that, but that's what my gut's telling me. Yeah. Let's hope it wasn't that because it would be a bummer to lose that food from your, like, I always hope if I get food poisoning, it's going to be just something that I don't like very much because if you get mm-hmm. food poisoning from something you like, that c- condition taste aversion kicks in and it's no good. Devastating. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was quite a way to start. I yeah. think I, so are you, how are you other than this rough, rough start to your new job? Are you excited about the new job? Yes. Oh my gosh. Kindergartners are hilarious and they're so cute. I am very excited. It's going to be an awesome summer. Very cool. Very cool. As long so as I don't you, get food poisoning again. What are you actually teaching them on a good day? I don't know exactly. It's kind of a mess to begin okay. with. It is like a, I work with another teacher. So we run the room together. So she's doing week one. And like yesterday she had a ocean theme. So we did like a seahorse book and then the kids got to decorate little seahorses. And then they ran around the gym and they were just running around in circles and screaming. And it was amazing. And this little girl fell and tripped. And the, my co-teacher was like, calm down. You're okay. Just take a few deep breaths. And this little girl regulated her emotions better than I have seen adults regulate she just took two deep breaths and bam she was back out there running again it was so I really like amazing it. i really like it when i see kids uh do stuff like that like when i see kids like stop take a deep breath or say something or something like that it always makes me happy it's like oh this is nice so right well, and it's like if she can do it then i can do it yeah exactly uh well hopefully you know what next week maybe it should be like botulism themed uh in keeping with the food the food poisoning idea. Oh God. That's my suggestion. Explain to them the oh. dangers of gas station sushi or whatever it was you were eating. So uh, yep. <laughs> all right. Let's get uh, let's get to today's episode here. Um, so this is this was a really, really fun one for me. And part of the reason it was fun is because something I talk about a lot is how we can channel our anger into sort of positive pro-social things, right? And so um, now one of those things that I've talked about before is art. And I've suggested to people that we can, you know, you can, when you're angry, channel it into art or music or 
writing poetry or, or all sorts of things like that. But the God's honest truth is that because I'm not an artist, I've never necessarily known how that works. And so one of the things I've been doing a lot lately is, is reaching out to artists and asking them these questions, you know, how do you do this? So I've asked some people on TikTok, um, you know, how do you channel your art into your, uh, into your work? Um, I've, excuse me, channel your anger into your work. Um, mm -hmm. But I, had a, I got to have a really, really great conversation about this this week with, uh, with Allison Gates. Yes, and you talk quite a bit in your book about, well, near the end of it, you talk about how we can channel our anger into, like you were saying, into positive activities. What about people that maybe aren't artists or uh, musically inclined or things like that? What kinds of things can they do to positively use their anger? Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of problem solving when I'm angry. So when I've, when I encounter some sort of frustration, when I encounter some sort of angering uh, thing in my life, I like to use the energy that that anger provides me into solving whatever problem was involved in, in causing that frustration, you know? And so sometimes it's a really small thing. Sometimes it's like a technological problem or something like that. Or, and I, and I just, I just say, you know what, I'm going to solve this now. I'm not going to put it off. I'm not going to wait. I'm frustrated now. Let's use that anger to, to solve this. Sometimes it's a much bigger problem, right? Sometimes it's a, it's a, it's an issue of sort of systemic injustice or, or, or um, a much broader, bigger problem. And, and when that happens, I start thinking about sort of small steps. What, what positive contribution can I have here? What are the things I can do to try and contributes to a solution to this broader problem. And, um, and so that's a way that I tend to, to channel my anger. And sometimes that includes writing. Sometimes it includes, you know, making TikTok videos. Sometimes it includes <laughs> donating to uh, political candidates. Um, sometimes it includes like adding things to my courses that I think are relevant that students should, should see. And so a lot of times that stuff is really motivated by my, my anger. That's really fascinating. The whole idea of using anger as fuel. And I know that'll be talked about more in the podcast today, but you talk about that in your book a lot as well. So what, how, how can people keep their, like refill their tanks? Because when you, I feel like when I'm mad, I run out of my energy right away. Like yeah. anger is exhaustive. So what are some ways, because I've noticed my work, I work harder when I'm mad sometimes. Like when I'm angry, I can get stuff done, but it's, it plateaus pretty fast, you know? Right. And, you know, I would say that it, it's tricky um, and it can be really hard. And I actually think it's something we want to be careful with because anger isn't always good for us and being angry too often isn't good for us. But I do think, you know, in those moments, one of the things I'm really, I, I often get concerned about is people suffering from outrage fatigue, that because they encounter the same injustice over and over and over again, that they just find themselves thinking, oh, well, it's just one more time. Or, you know, of right. course, that's what this person did. They always do that. And, and they just sort of let it go. And I think that it's important in some cases not to let that happen. Um, you know, so I think one way of dealing with that is to actually intentionally sometimes remind yourself of the consequences of, of things, to actually think through the reasons why this thing that's happened is unjust, the reason why it's mm -hmm. unfair. 
um, even the, the negative outcome on people just as a way of keeping yourself angry enough to do something about it. Um, and you know, what's really interesting is that while I think this is new in some ways, like talking about it this way is new, athletes have known this and done this for decades and decades and decades. I mean, this is not at all new to athletes in particular sports who find that they play better uh, when they are when they are angry. I was actually at a game the other day. I coached my son's team, and one of the players whose, whose father is also a coach said that he plays better when his toes get stepped on by another player. That it, <laughs> that it makes him mad, and he gets any. And, and so his dad at one point walked over to him and actually stepped on his toe, like not hard, but oh just my God. a reminder. So, just to get that anger flowing. Exactly. That's so, so interesting. And I remember reading that in your book. And that was the first time I thought about anger as almost empowering, you know, to focus on it and think, why am I feeling this way? And how can I use this to, a, you know, solve my problem or B, make progress? And, and that's not a way I thought about anger before. Well, and, you know, I think, I think it's most empowering or it's frankly only empowering if we also, if we don't also feel helpless. And that sometimes when we're really angry, we feel helpless and then it just, it just feels like we're suffering, but that's why sort of channeling it into these positive pro-social solutions is so important. So let's use that as an opportunity to transition into our guest today, who uh, is uh, a working artist and college professor teaching in both UW-Green Bay's art major and our women's gender and sexuality studies minor. She holds a BFA in sculpture from Western Washington University and an MFA in studio textiles from the University of Washington. In her own practice, she engages in both individual and collaborative projects, most often focusing on pushing the boundaries of textile traditions. Please welcome UW-Green Bay's Allison Gates. All right, thank you so much for joining me, Allison. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. So, um, I want to kind of share the, the backstory here a little bit, which is that I talk a lot uh, about how human beings can use anger, right? And, I, and in a lot of contexts, I feel like I know a lot about that, right? I, I know about it in terms of athletics. I think I know about it in terms of activism. But I oftentimes will use examples from sort of art and literature. And, and this is a place where I don't know nearly as much, um, you know, and where I sometimes feel uncomfortable coming up with examples of how art might be, excuse me, how anger might be used in, in, you know, literature or how it might be used in poetry or how it might be used in creating art. And so I wanted to, I think if memory serves, you were a guest uh, in a, in a podcast where we talked about it. And right afterwards, I got an email from you saying, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's have a conversation about art and anger. And so here we are. So well, thanks for having me. I'm excited yeah. to be here. I'm excited to have you. So let's start there. I mean, when you think, I mean, just if we start with just this wide open prompt, how is anger used in art, do you think? Uh, well, how is anger used in art, I think is an interesting question. And there are, I think there are multiple answers. The one, uh, the way that I used anger as, an, as a practitioner as a visual artist myself, 
most often it's a catalyst for something bigger. Um, and so you get angry about something and you begin to feel a certain way and you have to get it out of you. Right. And art, we always talk about like, it's a creative outlet, it's self-expression. So I think everybody sort of instinctively understands that when you engage in art, you're, you're pulling something from the inside out. And, um, but it's difficult because um, the, just the act of making art can oftentimes make you feel less angry. You know, because you're engaging in something and it starts to to work and uh, and you actually have gotten that out of you. Anger is such a volatile emotion. It can be burned out pretty quickly. It burns hot and fast if it's fuel. So um, if you're going to engage in um, something long term, you often need to get other people in in on the act. And so I know that anger has driven a lot of sort of community-based projects, a lot of um, collaborative projects. And, uh, and that can be really successful in helping people to cope with a collective feeling of uh, rage or ire, um, because it's, it's really strange to remain angry alone and engage in art making. Uh, it's hard to stay angry if you're making art. And so um, it's, it's a funny little thing that happens. Um, so anger can really spark a lot of imagery, uh, but the time that it takes to really make a quality work of art or a work of art that will speak to people, could, it could outlast your emotion, the thing that happened emotionally that made you start it. And that's why I was really interested when I was listening to, to you talk about your book, uh, when you were talking about like the, like the, um, like the adjunct emotions, affiliated emotions, like grief and sadness, uh, frustration, confusion, uh, because I think that those are the things that begin to come out once the anger is spent. That's what artists begin to put onto the paper or the canvas or in the work of art. Uh, it, it really unpacks the complexity of why we get angry in the first place. And as your feelings evolve, the piece will evolve. Um, and so I, so I think that it's, it's a multifaceted kind of process where anger might be the catalyst for you to start making work about grief, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think that's fairly that's, common. That's so, so fascinating to me because one of the things I deal with a lot when I, when I talk to people about anger is, is people describing anger as a secondary emotion where they talk about, you know, no, it's, it's fear at the core or sadness at the core and anger is secondary to that. And so in some ways, what I hear you saying it, I guess there's different ways of interpreting actually what you said now that I think about it, but in some ways it feels like the anger comes first, but then as you deal with it, it turns into sadness or grief or some of these other things. But I suppose, you know, in which case anger feels primary and some of those things feel secondary, but I suppose another way of looking at it is saying, no, anger is what you're letting yourself feel 
but once you really deal with it in a therapeutic way, that the that there's that that's when that grief comes out, and that's where you actually, and so in that sense, the art is a, a therapeutic process of getting at the, the 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 core emotion. Does that feel right or wrong? In my experience, yeah, in my experience, um, anger can help you tap into um, things that maybe. Um, that maybe you're not in touch with, uh, or, uh, well, I deal with this. Um, we have a lot of female students and they sometimes will not, they'll, they'll, you know, feminism, I don't really have anything to do with that, but then something will happen. They'll be the victim of, of some sort of sexist behavior and they'll get real angry. And they'll want to make work about that. And we'll talk about it and they'll come up with a project. And then when it comes time for the critique, <laughs> the piece looks, the piece does not look angry. The piece looks um, uh, like some great unfairness has happened that wounds them. Like the question then begins to be, why would someone see me as less? And um, the self-reflection begins to set in uh, or they find a community as they're talking about their work and they're making their work and with their classmates or um, you know, their coworkers or whomever's around who sees it, uh, things will start to come out of their conversations that they have with people. So anger might be a part of it but it's never the whole of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, th I do think that anger is kind of a, um, like I said, it's a catalyst, uh, not only to starting a piece of work, it takes a lot of energy to start a new piece of art. Um, so anger is good for that, but it, it's not the, it's, it's, it's never the end of the road. You know, it, things, things go on and you begin to unpack why you're angry. And that becomes really where interesting imagery, um, oftentimes there's memory or um, uh, it, they begin to observe things in the world, uh, tropes or symbols start to become a bigger part of the picture. Uh, so yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I really think of it as a, like striking a match, but right. where the fire goes, I don't know. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I, I often try to, to liken anger to a fuel that way, right? And a, a fuel that yeah. can, like any fuel, burn out of control if, if, if it's not handled well, but also one that can really energize people to create things and to, to do things. And, and that's what I've always seen as its value. And what I hear you saying is that it, it, you know, that yes, it's the spark, it's the fuel that energize, energizes you to do something that is really, really difficult and takes a lot of energy to do to create a work of art. And then, uh, but that over time, it almost has to shift into something else um, because, because part of it is that it, that fuel burns out, right? And, and um, 
unlike some other activities, maybe art requires so such detailed focus and discipline and things like that, that it would be hard to maintain that sort of level of rage yeah, the entire time. Yeah, and I, you know, all artists are different. Um, it depends on a lot of factors, but there's very little, um, there's very little that you can do in say an hour. You know, you could do a, a fast drawing, um, but then you would look at that and you would think, well, does this represent everything? Does, mm -hmm. is, this, um, is this enough? You know, maybe you feel better having done that, right? It always mm -hmm. feels better to have um, expressed that energy. Uh, but if, if it's a big issue, you know, if it's a social problem or um, an ongoing personal problem that you're really grappling with, just the anger itself, it, it might drive you back into the studio a few times, but um, after a while, the it, just the physical act is going to expel a lot of the energy that initially took you there. And so then your mind, once it's disconnected a little bit, begins to engage and wander. And mm -hmm. that's when you start to get into those deeper issues. I think mm -hmm. is, um, you know, I have students that, you know, they'll plan a project like a weaving. Um, it takes a lot of time to set a weaving up and then to do the weaving. Mm -hmm. And by that point, your emotions have changed a lot, right? Like mostly you've, expended the anger on the idea mm -hmm. right you might you might jot it down in your sketchbook and decide i'm going to make something like this but by the time you're done making the piece um a lot has happened to you uh physically and emotionally just because creating itself creates that that flow state that athletes mm -hmm. have um uh, maybe repetitive um motion as part of your art making and that can lead to um, states that are like meditation, uh, mm -hmm. brain waves that they've measured um, show these kinds of things. So that idea that you could remain angry while also completing a work of art, um, it's never happened to me. I, I always run out of anger before I'm done. That's what I was, uh, that's what I was actually gonna ask next is, is there, do you know of artists or is there a, a reason why people might sometimes want to try and keep that fuel or that fire stoked while they're, while they're working um, a way to kind of come back to this um, to try and stay angry? Yeah, well, you know, um, you would know better than I, I actually find being angry exhausting. <laughs> you know, it, it makes me really tired. Um, and, and I'm no stranger to anger. Like I get angry every day about yep. something. Um, uh, but there's a lot to the, be angry about Allison. I, I feel there's a like... lot to be angry about. Yep. Um, and, and I do think that, that what you're talking about kind of gets to the community aspect. Like if you are, ang if you and two friends are angry about the same thing and you decide you're, you're all three, you're going to make work about it. Uh, you can keep each other going right? Mm -hmm. You can stoke each other's fires. If, if you think, well, all right, well, if the three of us feel this way, 
there have to be a lot of other people who feel this way. Let's put it out there. Let's just have it be a big project and invite, you know, strangers to Mm -hmm. participate with us. Then it becomes more like a protest. It becomes more the energy of a march. Um, it, uh, you invest in some organization uh, and some scaffolding for the project. And then you're pumped up every time somebody new joins in. Um, and, and that actually has driven a lot of major projects that are really amazing. Like um, I think that ang- that kind of anger uh, drove the AIDS project, the Names Quilt, which now is, is so gigantic, there's no place for anyone to display it. And, um, and that helped a lot of people cope with grief, but it also um, raised uh, awareness of what AIDS was doing to our country and how we needed to really um, take on that pandemic and, and find some solutions or find, find some treatments. So it, um, so those kinds of things can really, that's where artists are often relied upon to come to the forefront and, um, and, and I, and really use their anger to create an image for a, a, an issue, I guess is the best way to, to talk about it. Like what kind of face are we going to paint on this issue? Um, and, and I find it really interesting when I look at picture photographs from protests, like who the signs, you know, especially in this age of social media, um, people really work hard on their protest signs and their posters or their, um, Mm -hmm. costumes or, uh, you know, how they present visually at a protest. That's really, um, I think there's so much creative energy that goes into that. And there are certain protests that I, um, you know, I'm like, ooh, those people are really creative. It, that's some pretty high stakes protesting going on there. You know, right. you see these amazing posters and things like that. And like, oh, that's such a great image. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or somebody commissions a bunch of balloons to fly over London and you're like, I'll never get that image out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny. Yeah, so, you, oh, go ahead. Oh, so yeah, getting other people involved to help uh, keep the keep that flame lit is definitely um, one of the ways that anger can be um, sustained. Yes, you know it's funny because I I think about it in a couple of ways here. When I think about protests in, in particular, I, I see in some ways I see the anger associated with art kind of going two directions. There's the the I'm trying to get other people's motivated. I'm trying to send a message. And by the way, I'm sure there's more than two, but I like to I like to dichotomize, I guess. Um, but there's you know I'm 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 trying to get other people motivated. I'm trying to to send a message and so on. But then there's also the therapeutic approach. And so um, and so it's interesting when those two things mix. So so my mom, who is a, a knitter, um, went. She made more hats for the women's march than anyone I know. I mean, she just she just kept going. And this was a place where those two things that I dichotomized came together, right? It was both about sending a message. It was also therapeutic for her. Like, here's a thing I can do um, and, right. and to show my, right. my it, frustration. It, right. And that is, I, 
I've read a lot about that and our colleague Ellen Rosewell and I have actually presented on some of that kind of um, craft activism. The, the Women's March with the Pussy Hat Project, uh, that really was um, three women who were like uh, just at a breaking point and we have to do something. And uh, well, let's make something to, let's go to the march. And while we're waiting, let's make something. And so they came up with that little cat-eared hat pattern. Um, and there are a lot of patterns like that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, knitters immediately were like, oh, can do that. Um, and so all of those hats were handmade. And, uh, you know, you have one head, you can wear one hat, but there are so many women who were going to the march who were not knitters or who were um, overwhelmed with, you know, the other parts of life, childcare, whatever. So uh, they started to collect hats uh, for other women to wear. Um, women made them for their friends. Uh, in one case, I read a, about a woman who um, was disabled and, and literally could not participate in a march. And she said that making hats for her um, her friends who could go in March made her feel a part of the movement. And um, mm-hmm. when you look at pictures of the marches, there's this weird pink haze um, over every one of those marches. There's no way that those pictures will ever be used as stock footage for any other March, you know, cause news, news organizations do this, right? They, recycle stock footage. Here's some people protesting in Madison, Wisconsin, and there's a palm tree, um, you know, so, but those pink hats, there's only one March that, that you can think of when you see all of those pink hats. And I laughed because I read um, someone in Congress said, how did they get all those hats over from China so quickly? Wow. Where did they get a factory to make all those hats? <laughs> no, those were just American yeah. women. That was the factory. It's like knitting right. needles. That's it. And, and you're right. It made a lot of women feel so much better just to do something with mm-hmm. their hands and to have a goal yep. and to have um, a, a, their voice heard through that visual representation. And even though there was some fallout and some criticism afterwards, it, um, for those who, who participated fully and were able to fully engage in that way, I, they would not trade that experience for anything. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it made a huge statement. It made a big visual impact. And, you know, I think some of those marches could mm-hmm. be seen from space. There's so much pink on the ground there. When my, my mom would as soon as she was done with one, she would start another one. And when asked who she was going to give it to, her answer was always, I'll find someone. Like, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll discover someone as I'm making this one who needs it or wants it, and I'll give it to them, and then I'll start the next one. And it was, so for her, it was also about sort of building that community and, and identifying people who were like-minded, who, who cared enough to wear it. Right. And, and it's connected to things like um, knit your bit <laughs> during all the wars there, you know, there are these posters that the Red Cross would make, um, you know, so knit socks for the boys. 
we forget that, that we're not really that far away from a um, pre-industrialized society where everything was handmade. And, um, and, and having a goal for making uh, is, is therapeutic. Um, having um, a reason beyond just, oh, this is me and I'm making myself feel better. Uh, oftentimes uh, people really need that as a catalyst uh, to give themselves a reason to make. Um, and I think that that really is kind of a depressing aspect to what we're talking about. A lot of people are angry and they have no outlet for it. Um, and in the United States, we don't really embrace making as um, we, we call it a hobby or art is a luxury or something like that. We don't embrace it as part of our mental health, which we should, because we know what happens when people don't have a creative outlet. Creativity can so easily become corrupted and applied to plans to, um, you know, commit acts of violence rather than knitting pink hats. I'd rather live in a world where people knit hats than, you know, shoot up their workplace. Right. So, <laughs> right. and, and, and this is actually recognized within the fiber community. You know, there, um, I have a tote bag somewhere that says I, I knit so I don't kill people and everybody laughs, but I think it's true. I think there are a lot of people <laughs> who are knitting um, because okay. otherwise, what are you going to do with that anger? Hmm. Well, so I want to make sure that we get to what we were talking about off air a little bit. Oh. And because, um, you know, and I was thinking about it while we were talking about it before. And then now, you know, if you ask me for artwork that was associated with fear, I could I could come up with at least one thing. And I don't know art. Right. But I would probably come up with maybe this is naive, but I would come up with the screen. Right. As a, as an example. I was just going to say, are you thinking of the screen? <laughs> I, and so good. I hope I was right. Um, but I, you were saying that, you know, coming up with examples of anger might be a little bit uh, tougher. So you, you had one for me and I pulled it up on the screen, but do you want to talk a little bit about it? Sure. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was tricky, um, which was surprising to me. Um, but the, the, the picture that I think is a classic example of artwork about anger is Picasso's Guernica. Um, Picasso painted it as a reaction to something that happened during the Spanish Civil War. Nazis came and bombed a village um, that was a stronghold for many anti-fascist fac factions that were uh, fighting to defeat Mussolini. So Mussolini got his pal Hitler to um, use the city as uh, like a test site for some bombings. And so for two hours, the people of Guernica were just uh, bom bombarded with um, explosions uh, from the air and uh, without warning. So Picasso painted Guernica and a uh, huge, huge work of art. It's uh, bigger than a room, taller than Picasso himself. And so when you stand and look at it, uh, your peripheral vision is completely absorbed by the image. Um, and the image is of a farmyard and there's a screaming horse and a woman 
holding uh, obviously dead baby and uh, there's a home burning and chaos. There's chickens and, uh, you know, everyone's screaming. And Picasso has used all of his powers of abstraction to do things like um, stretch the necks so that you, there's no mistake what's going on. And every, everyone is looking skyward. Um, mm -hmm. But the weird thing is that it's painted in shades of gray and it's very uh, neutral in its color palette. He ordered a specific paint so that it wouldn't even be shiny. Um, and that, for some reason, has a really chilling effect. We think of anger as um, associated with hot colors, like red or um, red violet, or you know, like blood. Mm -hmm. And this painting has no, has none of those in its color palette. It's incredibly gray. Um, and, and actually, it's interesting because in the 1970s, and I, I was just reading this, which is why I'm thinking that. In the 1970s, another artist, um, Guernica was hanging in the Museum of Modern Art, and another American artist who was angry about Vietnam came in and um, splashed it with red paint. Uh, I guess, you know, to say this isn't angry enough, or this didn't work, this didn't, this didn't keep us from going to war again, so you know, um, because, you know, artists are the way they are. <laughs> we always have something to say about each other's work. Uh, but of course, you know, right away, the museum people went over, carefully scrubbed all the red paint off. And so now it's back to its, hmm. its mono, monotone grays. Um, but I, I've always thought that that was so strange as a painting about anger that it's, um, it looks black and white. Mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Firebombing I mean, a farm is kind of a black and white wrong yeah. kind of thing to do. <laughs> and that's what, that's fascinating. And because, it, so when, when you mentioned it before, I, I pulled it up on my, my other monitor and I'm going to, I'm going to share a picture of it along with the show notes for anyone who wants to, to see it. Um, and my, my first instinct when I looked at it was to say, why, why are all these pictures in black and white that I, I actually figured I was just not looking at, at the actual painting until you said something about it. And because it is, I mean, it, it looks, it looks like a black and white picture. And so, but yeah, yeah, now when you, when you put it that way, that's fascinating. Well, and also at the time that he would have painted it, you know, there wouldn't have been color television or any television, um, newspapers it would have been newspapers that people would be reading about this atrocity and so that could also have contributed to it um giving it sort of a uh the feeling of um immediacy and and journalism rather than um like oh this is a beautiful painting that you're going to hang in your house it right. matches the sofa <laughs> this this is so Interesting, Allison. Um, as we finish up, I guess, is there any, anything we missed, anything you want to add that we should be talking about? Well, I just think, um, going back to the mental health part, I, I really do think that we need to uh, create more opportunity for people to have an outlet for anger. Um, 
you know, because you sit on it and it festers. But like I said, it's hard to maintain that anger when you're working productively towards a goal um, in the creative arts. And um, so I really just hope that whether or not you're, whether or not children get outlets for this kind of thing in school or whether or not adults engage in this as hobby, um, if you do feel angry, just try and draw it. See what mm-hmm. happens, because I think it can only make a person feel better, even if it's a lousy drawing. I know that stitching, like I do a lot of embroidery, stabbing a piece <laughs> of cloth repeatedly, it's good therapy. You just, <laughs> Very good. there's nothing better. <laughs> you know, it's funny, and I'm going to editorialize a little bit as we finish up here, but I people talk to me all the time about emotional intelligence and how do we cultivate emotional intelligence? And will you come speak to our business about emotional intelligence? And you know what? I'm, I'm happy to, and I love talking about it, but the thing that we know works best when it comes to cultivating emotional intelligence is exposure to the arts. Um, we know that getting kids involved in reading and writing and acting and painting and all of these different things we know it, it matters, music, uh, it, that is what matters most when it comes to actually developing emotional intelligence. And so don't get me wrong, the, the arts are inherently valuable. We don't, need to, we don't need another reason why the arts are important, but if we wanted another reason, here it is. I, I, I can't agree with you more. Well, obviously you're preaching to this choir, <laughs> but... Um... It just in as someone who's been working as an art educator for over 20 years now, I know that uh, there are times when uh, having a studio to work in and an assignment to do has saved my students' lives. They've told me that. So it's not even abstract for me. I know that it is just crucial to the well-being of all of our society um, that people have a creative outlet and can engage in those kinds of activities. That is the perfect place to finish up. So I can't thank you enough, Allison, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the opportunity. I had fun. All right, Ryan, now that the episode is concluding, we are going to take a question from TikTok. So our question for this episode is, is all anger linked to injustice or can it be linked to fear and anxiety and be a stress response or a distress response? Yeah, so I like this question a lot. I think it's really interesting. So I want to talk about basically like three sources of anger that I see. And of course, I mean, these are broad categories, right? But Uh, So one of them is what I call injustice or unfair treatment, right? This is what we, this is what the, the, the person asked about. This is when we experience something or witness something that feels just fundamentally unfair uh, or unjust. A variation of this is someone who's just been treated cruelly, right? So maybe it's not necessarily unjust, but a person has treated you poorly. And I think that is kind of one block uh, of why people get angry. Um, 
Another is though that that feels very separate, and I think frankly we could even talk about it in as as being separate if we wanted to. That would be some splitting hairs, but we could, and that's goal blocking. So you're trying to do something, and you can't do it. Um, right, something's interfering in your goals, and so you can think about this in terms of uh, I'm I'm trying to log into a, a meeting and my Zoom won't work or my computer's not working. Or you can think about it as I'm driving to uh, to work and I keep hitting red lights or traffic is really bad or something like that, right? Anything that interferes in your your goals. And those goals can be big goals, they can be small goals. Um, but then I think there's also a category of anger where it truly is, as this, this person's question implies, of... Uh, uh, I guess of secondary emotion or what people often, people oftentimes ask me is anger a secondary emotion? And my answer is always, it can be, I don't think it always is. And I don't even think it usually is, but it can be. And I think it's sometimes when it is truly a, a secondary emotion, it, it's because at the person's core, uh, you know, they're really feeling hurt or they're feeling scared or they're feeling sad and they become angry, um, that, that anger is basically the, the result of those other feelings of distress in some ways, and maybe even because it feels a little bit safer to them. Right. I can think I've seen that in person. My dad is not a person to get angry very often, but I remember the only times I ever heard him swear when I was a child was when we were in the car and either like we almost got in an accident or someone pulled out in front of us. We almost got hit because he was so afraid of something happening to us that he immediately flashed out in anger. Right. And, you know, it's so interesting because this is one of the problems is when we talk about emotions in, in this sort of way that we're talking about them, we sometimes forget that they don't, they rarely happen on their own, right? We, we anger, fear, sadness, they don't happen in a vacuum. They, they exist and they're correlated with one another. And so, Oftentimes, when we're feeling one thing, we're also feeling another thing. And that's a really good example, right? So uh, in a dangerous situation, um, I, I am scared because me or my family were almost harmed, but I'm also angry at the person who put us in that position. Um, and that anger, you know, stems from that, that you know, potentially harmful situation. The, the same thing could be said. I mean, we were talking before off air about grief as being an example and that, that, you know, anger is oftentimes part of the grief response. And I'm not, I'm not embracing a stages of grief model by any means. I'm just saying that people experience anger at the same time that they experience sadness when they, when they lose a loved one. Um, you know, take the classic example of somebody being, you know, broken up with. And, you know, at the core of that is hurt and sadness. Um, but then oftentimes what also emerges is anger at the person for doing that or anger at, um, at the person for, for, for breaking up with them. And so, you know, I think it, it can absolutely emerge um, as a be linked to fear and anxiety or, or emerge as a distress response. Do you think that that would be or could be a defense mechanism um, because people don't want to feel that sadness? So instead they're lashing out. Is that why that is? I do. Um, I, I really think, you know, if you were to ask people what right now, what would you most like to fear? You, excuse me, most like to feel. 
you have to choose one of these three things. You have to be scared, you have to be sad, or you have to be angry. Most people are going to choose anger. Um, now, I know there are people out there who, who don't like to be angry for, for various mm-hmm. reasons. I totally understand that. But I think more often than not, if you, if, if you have to choose those emotions, um, people choose to be angry. And the thing is, now, we don't always get a choice, quote unquote, but we can find ways to reframe situations or to reappraise situations or focus on parts of situations that make us angry instead of scared, that make us angry instead of sad. Um, you know, I, instead of focusing on the, the person who has recently died, I can focus on the cancer that took them. And that gives me something to be angry about instead of the loss that I'm suffering with them being gone. Um, and so, and I, I'm not suggesting that people do this intentionally. I don't think people are making that cognitive intentional choice so much as it's just mm-hmm. a natural thing because it, for the exact reason you said, because it feels safer. That makes a lot of sense. All right. That is all we've got for this week. Sammy, thank you so much for being here and for helping out. And I hope, hope, hope you feel better. I <laughs> same here. <laughs> not not the best way to start out a new job, but it can only go up from there, I'm thinking. This is true. <laughs> you can find me and at question ask questions at Anger Professor on social media, or you can visit my website, allthereagescience.com. Why We Get Mad is a special series from Psychology and Stuff and a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek and our graphic designer is Kimberly Vleese. Special thanks to my guest, Allison Gates. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgv.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Sammy Alderfeeser. Keep being amazing.